Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. The good old American desert, may it forgive us of our sins. On the news for a good chunk of the Southwest this coming week is the heat. Just got this off the wire, might as well read it. From the National Weather Service, excessive heat warning remains in effect from 10 a.m. Monday to 8 p.m. Friday. Wow, that's all of next week. Dangerously hot conditions with high temperatures of 108 to 116 in many locations on Monday. Then increasing 2 to 3 degrees on both Tuesday and Wednesday and holding through at least Friday. Temperatures are likely to exceed 120 degrees by Wednesday in locations such as the Colorado River Valley and Death Valley National Park. The extreme heat will reach portions of northwest Arizona, southeast California, and southern Nevada. Extreme heat will significantly increase the potential for heat-related illnesses, particularly for those working or participating in outdoor activities. Drink plenty of fluids, stay in an air-conditioned room, stay out of the sun, and check up on relatives and neighbors. Young children and pets should never be left unattended in vehicles under any circumstances. Take extra precautions if you work or spend time outside. When possible, reschedule strenuous activities to early morning or evening. Know the signs and symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Wear lightweight and loose-fitting clothing when possible. To reduce risk during work, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration recommends scheduling frequent rest breaks in shaded or air-conditioned environments. Anyone overcome by heat should be moved to a cool and shaded location. Heat stroke is an emergency. So call 911 if somebody's got the heat stroke. Good advice for anybody dealing with the extreme heat anywhere on the planet, but it is punishing out here, and yes, it's still technically springtime, but in reality, by mid-late June, we know it's all over. And if you need some encouragement to be prepared when you're out and about in the desert wilds, recall that writer Claire Nelson made international headlines in 2018 after she plummeted over 25 feet in a hiking accident which left her immobilized and alone in the wilderness with no way to call for help. Hours became days, and her rescuers had not expected to find her alive. Ha ha ha!
This is Desert Oracle Radio, and I'm your host, Ken Lane. We are joined by telephone from across the sea by Claire Nelson, a name you may have heard before on this program because her story has turned into, well, first an international news sensation and lately a new book that's now out in the U.S., Things I Learned from Falling, published by Harper One. Claire, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. The last time I saw you was the only time I'd ever seen you in person, which was in my house. (laughs) It's a true story. And it seems like about 15 years ago, but it was pretty much just before (laughs) the pandemic. It was a year and a half ago, not quite. And it it was a Christmas party, and people were coming in and out, and... I had never met you. I think we'd talked on social media or email or something. And I thought, what fun. All these people are here, and I've just moved into this compound, and I'm going to have parties like this every couple of weeks. And that, that was the last one. Were you here for what on that trip? Was that just uh, come back and see friends you knew around here, or was it research? Or It was just coming back to revisit the desert to see the friends that I have there and my my mother had come over to the states for Christmas and she wanted to see the desert uh, where you know everything went down so it was kind of a you know showing her the sights as well they returned to the scene of the crime exactly your adventure happened in 2018 what time of year was it it was end of May So just about three years ago, exactly. A lot of people come out here at the end of May and they think, oh, it's springtime, it's very mild weather. You you sort of learned differently, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. Thank goodness it wasn't any later in the year, but boy, that was was as hot as as you'd want it, as you'd be able to kind of still enjoy the desert, but obviously not, not in my situation. Claire, if you had 30 seconds to describe the book without giving away the good parts, what what would you say? Ooh, um, it's a book about survival, and it's a book about fear and how those instincts are misplaced. And it's through the lens of surviving four days injured in Joshua Tree Desert and also surviving modern-day burnout. Anxiety. Now, the modern-day burnout is sort of what brought you here. Is that correct? Yes. I was living in London, and yeah, I think when you live in a big city like this and, and you're someone who needs to connect to nature, I just got to the point where I'm like, I had to get out, and I had I just went, I kind of hid for the hills, you know. I, uh, I went to North America and, and went looking for some solitude and, and they're really in the mo- most remote places I could find. And this wasn't your first trip to Joshua Tree, is that correct? I'd been to Joshua Tree once before, but it was a very brief 24-hour trip. I'd, I'd come to California for a wedding with some friends and we, we did a little kind of quick pit stop in Joshua Tree and I, I was determined to go back at some point. I have a real thing with well, with deserts, but with anywhere that's, you know, very remote wilderness, it's just, I feel very at ease there and I was like I need to come back to this place at some point what did you think you were going to get out of it were you kind of looking for some guidance with what you were going to do next or I yeah I knew something had to change in my life I hadn't figured out what that was going to be 
I just knew two things were true in life for me. One was that I felt safest on my own and that I felt happiest in the outdoors. So I thought if I just kind of focus on doing those two things and then maybe the rest will become clear. And admittedly, I ended up in Joshua Tree. I was there to, to house sit for some friends there who lived out there. And I mean, I'd started out in Canada and ended up down in California. But at the end of the day, it was kind of just trying to go from one remote wilderness to another and, and, and hike and be outside as much as I could be. We're on the air in Joshua Tree, so a lot of people know the park fairly well and a lot of our <laughs> listeners have been through here what what part of the park were you in i was in the very southern side of the park in the lower colorado on the lost palms oasis trail which i'd heard things about and was extremely intrigued partly because it was like a full day trip with you know the drive right across the park and then the sort of four miles in each way in and out but the fact that there were these palm trees at the end of it which sort of felt like you were going towards a treasure you know like there was something at the end of it this this is a very good illustration that a lot of people have a hard time with especially when they they're only on the north side of the park the mojave section where the joshua trees are even though it's not the biggest national park around is very different on the north and south sides how would you describe the differences between the Mojave and the Colorado desert sides of the national park? The most obvious difference is that once you get into the, the south side of the park, you don't have the Joshua trees anymore. And so kind of all of the, the, the flora is is really, it's, it's much lower to the ground. Also, the landscape's much more rocky. There's a lot more kind of valleys and boulders and, and it's kind of more gritty and the temperature gets seems to get a lot hotter there as well so it's almost like it's a different park and at that time of the year i think that's when we start seeing fewer visitors and people on the trail on the south side simply because it's hotter what were the conditions like when you headed out on what was supposed to be a nice day hike it was it was hot i mean it was to my mind perfect hiking conditions you know clear blue sky very warm i set out early and i actually left i decided to go on a tuesday morning because i figured there'd be fewer visitors in the park which at the time that seemed like a really good idea um because i wanted the trail all to myself foolish foolish me for a lot of us uh, an empty trail is a delight because we've got what we came for we've got nature the sounds of nature we're not listening to other people argue and jabber and listen to music on their phones or whatever and right after your your fall and your four harrowing days you had nature all to yourself didn't you yeah that was exactly what i i'd come for and um and i was like right i've i've got it when you went missing, the issue seemed to be that nobody around here knew about it. Is that the case? Yeah. Considering the fact that I was there to house it for people who weren't there, I just started to meet people who didn't really know me. So, you know, I didn't have any real connections or ties to anyone in Joshua Tree who were present. And I hadn't told anyone where I was going, which is obviously the the biggest number one hiking mistake um and so and no one was expecting me back 
the the book goes into interesting detail about how this happened. It ended up being one of our global enemies, social media, right? That eventually sounded the alarm. Yeah. I always feel so embarrassed to say that, that it was sort of um, the fact that I was so quiet on Instagram was what made people notice that maybe, maybe I wasn't all right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's a real, a really big signal that I had let social media kind of be the, the, my main form of connecting with people, my main line of communication to friends and family and people. So, of course, that was the only way people were going to tell that something had happened. And once it was noticed, it was people out of the United States who sounded the alarm locally. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the friends I was house-sitting for who weren't in the States, they had their friends um, come around uh, and, and check on, on the house, and, and they noticed that I wasn't there. And so then they sounded the search and rescue alarm. Um, and then my car, well, my friend's car was that I was driving was found at the trailhead. Um, and so it was kind of all the pieces were put together. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm still kind of in awe of the fact that it even happened. Some of our people who vanish from trails in this desert park and in parks throughout the southwest and wilderness areas. Their car at the trailhead is often the clue that eventually leads them to you know, being discovered more more often dead than alive. Right. But in your case, your car was there at the trailhead for four days and nights? Yeah, four, four days, three nights. And yet it still took your real-world friends on social media to connect a car left at a trailhead with the person that was in it. Yeah. I think for a lot of us solo hikers, and I include myself, we assume if we don't come back and, and get the car by the next morning or something, that the search and rescue teams will be out and the helicopters and everything else. And that I think that's one of the more baffling parts of your predicament there is that well-known fail-safe did not work. Yeah, and I get asked about that a, you know, a reasonable amount. I don't know how else it could be improved upon because, I mean, for all anybody knew, I could be you know, off on one of the campsites in the area. And so I, I just, I, yeah, I mean, a part of me hoped that maybe after one night, the car would be kind of a signal that someone had been there overnight. But with campsites in that area as well, it was like, well, look, no one's going to assume the worst so soon. I did stop in at the ranger station, um, well, at the visitor center and talk to a ranger there about the trail. And they knew I was hiking it, but there was no log of that. And I didn't inquire whether there was a log of that because of course I'm not, I'm not even thinking about there being any danger at, at that point. And, and you hike a lot around the world. You're pretty comfortable yeah. in different terrains and different climates. You weren't expecting a harrowing trip. No, <laughs> no not at all. I mean, this is the thing. I, I, I'm so, I'm like, I was kind of feeling more relaxed and more confident at that point in time in that place than I did in my life back in London. So the kind of the little thrill of warning signs and the little red flags saying danger, like none of that was there. Um, which I think just, you know, it, it comes with being confident and comfortable. And, and when you get comfortable, you kind of forget 
that there are still risks involved. And unlike a, a lot of our visitors who've gotten into trouble or been found months or years later dried up on the trail, you had been hiking daily or close to daily during your time when you were house-sitting here. Yeah, I was going out on small hikes, in the, not in the park, but in the desert around the park most of the, t- the days that I was there and but that particular day was my first hike inside the national park on my own I'd, I'd been on hikes in the park before but that was the first time alone inside the park and in a way I, I think there's again that false sense of security when you think I'm in a national park this is this is a place where visitors come every day you know it kind of removes another layer of that that risk radar you know yeah we have that in Yosemite, for example, where most of the fatalities that happened in Yosemite happened at the most people trails and attractions in the whole valley. Wow. Because there's lots of people there, and there is a, a sense of security when there's signs. I've been told ever since I was a kid how crucial it is to let a ranger know before you go on a solo hike. I've almost never done it. But... That's always been the thing I was told. You did exactly that. Yeah. I I know better as well. I mean, I'm from New Zealand. And, you know, the number of times you you read in the paper in New Zealand that someone's gone hiking in the bush and the weather has turned and they've got, you know, into serious trouble. And I've always gone, gosh, don't they know any better? You're supposed to tell someone where you're going. And so that's why when, when you know, I, I got into trouble myself, the first thought I had was, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, I was very aware of the fact that it was I'd made that massive mistake. But yet you had checked in with a ranger. Your car was in the lot where you went on your hike. These are things that, that I've been told, that I've overheard rangers telling people at a trailhead, especially, you know, obvious uh, tourists or people with little kids or whatever their likely weakness in their plan with all the things that you did do right going in those systems failed on the other side yeah the false security i mean i've certainly felt this going to places where i haven't been before or i don't know very well i'll go in and talk to somebody usually trying to find out some inside dirt i've heard there's a little miner's cabin up here where is it or Where might I see some desert tortoises this month? With the sense that, oh, you checked in. Right. You've got lots of this in the book, but can you give a little idea of moments when you were aware of your place in that remote environment? Yeah. There was a strange moment on the third night when I'd gone through what, in hindsight, what I would have realized I'd gone through those stages of grief, you know, like, anger and depression and denial and and then I sort of reached acceptance and I kind of it was a really peaceful night and I had this really nice moment when I thought well okay if I'm going to die anywhere like I can't think of a better place and I sort of felt like like I could see I saw some bats in the rocks above me and and I was fascinated just watching them, and I was like, "This is kind of nice." Like the, now, the wildlife's coming out. They're not. They know I'm not a threat. You know, I've been here long enough, and I've just kind of started to merge with the with the landscape. You know, I've kind of become part of the furniture. 
And that felt really nice, I have to say. But despite, obviously, the, the dynas of the, the situation, it wasn't the worst feeling. It's something Edward Abbey writes about in Desert Solitaire when he and his search party find someone who has died on a day hike. But he was when he was found, he was sitting underneath a juniper tree in the shade, looking out at this just beautiful view of the canyon country, the slick rock country. And Abby theorizes, of course, he wasn't there. He's just one of the strong backs they sent out to bring the body back. That there must have been peace and appreciation of the beauty after whatever panic and accidents had had led to that situation. But it's something that so few people ever have a, a chance to report back on because it's usually, like you say, a, a last stage a, a acceptance. Wow. You know, in a sense, it's like a, a near. Well, I guess it is. Of course, it's a near death experience, but. Were you conscious when you were found? Barely. Uh, I, I, I think because I'd hit the acceptance stage, that last day I was really weak because I, I, I definitely believe, especially after this experience, that where the mind goes, the body will follow. So I'd just become really weak, very dehydrated, and I was sort of drifting in and out of what I would describe as a fever dream. Um, and so it was really just I'd heard something and it kind of come into, you know, when you hear a sound when you're asleep and it enters your dream, it was like that. But it sort of snapped me into consciousness. And that was kind of a lifesaver. When I first saw your story going around the high desert here, the thing that was so striking was something that a lot of tourists almost never, ever consider, especially tourists from other countries, which is that if you're injured during your ordeal, now there's a whole new ordeal. (laughs) Yes. Oh, boy. Your completely reasonable, rational fear of the healthcare system in the United States. Oh, yeah. That that was... That was an eye-opening experience. You come through this <laughs> fantastic adventure, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the most banal daily world horror greets you in our local hospital, High Desert Medical Center. Can you tell us when your first realization was that you were now in a whole different can of worms? Well, it didn't happen immediately because I had travel insurance. And I, I want to preface this by saying that I used to work in the travel industry and I had a long-held belief that travel insurance was a form of gambling. So I often didn't take it out. And this one trip, I had taken it because I was so afraid of being bitten by a rattlesnake. <laughs> and I'd heard that the antivenin is really expensive. So I made sure I had unlimited medical coverage, thankfully. And so when I first was in hospital, I was like, thank goodness for that. I'm covered, and my insurance company confirmed that I was covered for all of the costs involved with, you know, the urgent medical treatment. But it was, uh, I think I'd, I'd been in hospital about 18 days, and they were trying to medevac me back to Canada. And uh, then my insurance company decided that they actually didn't want to pay out. <laughs> and they said they were only going to pay out, I think it was 20,000 US dollars, which wasn't even a one day in hospital. Um, Good God. And it was Canadian so uh, my friends had to literally come in and remove me from the hospital immediately, um, which I'm ever grateful to them for that. And, you know, it was just, I was like, that was, and then that was kind of when everything started to really, or like PTSD started to kick in and, and anxiety and, and panic and having to manage my own pain. And 
because I'm managing my own pain, I'd never really heard of Percocet before and didn't really understand what what dangers that uh, came with. So self-medicating, and uh, you know, it, it took it took the best part of that, or basically took the rest of that year and then some to get the insurance company to admit that they were liable for those costs and they did start to pay out. But you never know what your bill is going to come to. No one tells you. No one, uh, you know, a doctor pulled me aside and said, just so you know, there is no price list. You will just get sent a figure at some point. And that was was scary. And I think in the end, I was still getting the the bill receipts from the insurers like over a year later. and, And all in all, it was about, it would have been about half a million US dollars just for the, the hospital portion of my recovery. The book is called Things I Learned from Falling. It's out now. It's a hell of a story. From Amboy to Zizix and across the Great Mojave Wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio, broadcasting from our headquarters in Joshua Tree. The podcast is always available, just make sure you download it before traveling the backcountry. You can go behind one boulder and there's no more cell phone service. And there goes your security blanket. Our security blanket here on the show is provided by Red, Blue, Black, Silver, who composes and performs the soundscapes you hear during the program. And your host, that's... Me has a story in the new Palm Springs Noir, which is a desert grime collection from Akashic Books. Next week, I'll be able to tell you about our July performances. We just got to clear it with the governor of California. We're expecting an announcement June 15th. So until then, enjoy your hot desert week. Please don't leave your dog or your cat or your kids or your spouse in the hot car outside. And enjoy the respite of the night. Just put a chair underneath the swamp cooler and deal with it all like a pro. Because we want to talk to you next week as well. So thanks for listening. You can find out more about us at DesertOracle.com And good night from the Voice of the Desert. (laughs) 